0: The, the transformation isn't in the drug, right? The drug isn't a This mag- is important to mention. Yeah, yes. this is, the drug is not... So, like, like, higher states of consciousness are tools, they're not toys, right? Yes. Like, and, and, if you, and if you're using them in, in, in a situation where you have not put them within a, a, a set of psychotechnological practices in which you're cultivating wisdom, you're really looking for ways in which you are prone to self-deception. If you stick that into those, there's a great chance you're just going to bullshit yourself.
1: The meaning crisis that is currently unfolding in our culture is producing a form of existential angst that is gnarly, messy, and very real. There is a palpable collective low-grade anxiety that can be felt on all levels. The old cognitive frameworks are no longer working, and so we may turn to various distractions or succumb to a silent form of apathy. Our guest today has been grappling with the themes surrounding our crisis for a few years now and has published articles on relevance realization, general intelligence, mindfulness, flow, metaphor, and wisdom.
2: On this episode of the Soul Space Podcast, we interview John Verveke. Speaking to the meaning crisis, John's work is centered around bridging the gap between science and spirituality. He talks to us about the importance of psychotechnologies as cognitive tools that can help us overcome self-deception and move towards wisdom. We also navigate the world of altered states and transformative experiences. John has been with the University of Toronto since 1994 as an assistant professor, teaching courses in psychology, cognitive science, and the intersections between Buddhism and mental health. He has won numerous teaching awards. John is the first author of the book, Zombies in Western Culture, a 21st Century Crisis. You can check out his new YouTube series titled, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We are your hosts, Adrian and Thao. It is our pleasure to bring you, John Verveki. John. Welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. Great. Glad to be here. I I was sitting um, thinking about all the different things we could really explore with you, mm-hmm. but at at a basic level, I see all the stuff that you're doing, all the research and lectures that I've that I've watched, seem to be trying to bridge or unify science and spirituality. And mm-hmm. I, see I think I think that's
0: very fair. Yeah, I think it's a fair representation of what I'm trying to do. Um, uh, so uh, I see uh, the situation that we're in culturally in the West right now is one that I've called the meaning crisis. Uh, there, many people are converging on this uh, as a topic um, and you see increasing number of books even talking about this the, the malaise of modernity by Taylor or the crisis of modernity or, right and so these these kinds of books are proliferating um, and, and, and I don't just mean quantitatively that the quality like if somebody like Charles Taylor is bringing to bear his enormous philosophical acumen on this that tells you that something central is going on and of course he followed that up in the secular age so i think all of us are concerned with what do we do with um our spiritual our spiritual heritage so i mean we, we come from this period i'll often do this with my students in class i'll say how many of you read anything from the bronze age how many of you read the epic yeah. of gilgamesh your, you know the Egyptian myth, and nobody reads that. And I'll say, well, how many of you read Plato? A lot of people put up their hands. Or the Bible, a lot of people, you know, Confucius, a lot of people. And I say, why are those people sort of ours and the people before the Bronze Age collapse aren't? And so, you know, there's somewhat controversy about this, but I think uh, I agree with many people like Bella and Karen Armstrong that, you know, around, it's hard to put a precise date on it, 600 uh, to 300 BCE we went through this radical transformation right that laid the foundations many of the foundations uh, for, for what we call western civilization and that axial revolution uh, gave us kind of a grammar a fundamental grammar for our spirituality and and what had happened is before the the, the bronze age collapse and then the Axio revolution that followed it during the bronze age you had you had a you had a much different view of the cosmos so there was a lot more continuity it was like a continuum between the natural world, the human world, and the world of the gods, right? And it, it, it and what and it was much more sort of a continuum of differences in power. So it wasn't strange for a very powerful human being to be godlike or even a god, perhaps like in ancient Egypt. Right? And then what happens when the Bronze Age civilization collapses is that continuous cosmos tends to be to be challenged and. Sorry, this is a bit of a speech, but I need to lay some groundwork here. And what happens is there's a dark age, and then there's an invention of a bunch of psychotechnologies. We can talk a little bit later about what a psychotechnology is, but one of the most important is alphabetic literacy, and another one is coinage. And what they both do is, they're invented for very practical reasons, but the thing about uh, alphabetic literacy is it makes literacy available. And the thing about literacy, think about how much it empowers your cognition. If I were to take literacy from you, most of the problems you try to solve most of your information processing collapse. Look around you. Everybody's using literacy. The other thing they're using is numeracy, and that's what Coinage does: advanced numeracy, advanced abstract symbolic thought. And so people get these psychotechnologies and they they internalize them because they're using them every day and automatically. But see, the thing about a psychotechnology is it it, it spreads beyond where you originally use it. And so what happens is people's cognition is suddenly amazingly bootstrapped, and they're seeing the world right? They're getting what Bella calls second order cognition. They're getting much more critically and self-aware. And this is what seems to be prototypical of the age. It's the rise of what's called theoretical man. Sorry for the sexist term, but that was the traditional way of putting it.
1: It can also be noise too, right? Uh,
0: with, with the psychotechnology?
1: Well, yes, like all, being bombarded with text and, and, and numbers and all that. And um, a lot of people become disenchanted with, the, with being bombarded. Well, that's part of what I want to talk
0: about. Part of what I want to talk about is the fact that when we got the actual revolution, when we had that bootstrapping, and people became much more self-critical, what, what happened was they create, as I, as I, as I want to say, that this, this sort of legacy.
1: And, and we're in
0: danger of losing the legacy precisely because of what it has given us. Um, so what happened to us before there was this continuous cosmos, but as people became very critically self-aware, they, they gained a tremendous sense of responsibility that they were responsible for the violence and the suffering in the world. It wasn't just a natural part of the world because they had become very aware of how self-deceptive the mind was. And this is where they you get this emerging awareness of how much the mind can create illusion and self-deception. And so what happens, right, is before the actual revolution, wisdom is about fitting into this continuous cosmos. It's kind of like you know the, the the Vulcan way of life, living long and prospering, right? Kind of thing. But after the actual revolution, people are like they're they're really aware of their capacity for self-deception. But they're also simultaneously, because these two go together, aware of their capacity for self-transcendence, right? And so what they do is they change the notion of wisdom. It's not about fitting in, because you don't want to fit into this everyday world. Because this is the everyday world of illusion and self-deception, self-deception and suffering. Instead, what you want to do, wisdom is about transcending, rising above, freeing yourself from that self, those self-deceptive processes. And what happens is, right? And, and the degrees to which this is taken literally and it's understood philosophically or mythically, like in Plato. But nevertheless, you get this, you get this grammar of two worlds: the everyday lower world of illusion and suffering into which we have fallen and then there's an upper world uh, you know the real the really real world and wisdom is about getting there and so what what develops is people start developing entire sets of psychotechnologies for trying to enhance you can see it in buddhist mindfulness you can see it in uh, platonic theoria there's all these psychotechnologies that are developing and 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 they right and think about how a lot of this way of thinking right has just become natural to you it's become your grammar now the problem is we have this tremendous heritage that gives us all these, all these psycho technologies for dealing with how we can deceive ourselves and get enmeshed in foolishness. But they're, they're bound up with this two world mythology, this two world grammar. And the problem is, for a lot of historical reasons and that that then dovetail with the emergence of the scientific worldview, we don't have that two world mythology anymore. No very few people and I, I don't mean to step on anybody's religious toes, but very few people believe that there's you know a, a supernatural world or an other world above and beyond uh, the scientific worldview. And so what happens is all of these psychotechnologies that are still effective because of the way they work with cognition are now orphaned. They have like like there's no, there's no worldview that legitimates them. Right, that legitimates them into a systematic set that really helps you cultivate in an intellectually and existentially respectful right, manner right, this wisdom and self-transcendence we've been talking about. So people thrash around and they try to cobble together little bits and pieces of discarded worldviews and they play with alternative realities and they alter their state of consciousness to try and get an alternative metaphysics and they're struggling to try and get back something that we've lost because there's a deep sense right, that these psychotechnologies were, uh, I, I guess I'll, want to, I'll use it as a, almost essential or at least indispensable uh, to dealing with these deep issues uh, of, of, of foolishness and flourishing. And as our lives become more foolish and as flourishing becomes more and more difficult, our sense of connectedness to ourself to the world and to each other is being radically undermined, and that's what I mean by the meaning crisis.
2: And it, it looks to me that part of your work is to actually come up with a new grammar that helps to unify this fragmentation that's happening, yes. where everybody's yes. trying to claim, you know, that their version or their techniques are better. You know, and uh, maybe that's that's a that's a, n- a nice place to actually lay down some understanding too. Is how you view the mind. Yeah. And. What are you talking about when you when you mention cognition? What is what is that? Sure. Like, how does that unify? That's that's a great question.
0: So for me, uh, the the central idea is to try and understand um, cognition in terms of our capacity for problem solving. Um, this is uh, and, and, I, and this is the I think the uh, initial and profound insight that goes back, right? You know, to 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 Binet when we started studying intelligence intelligence and intelligence and that's why we test it we test it by giving people problems to solve uh, and and what 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 has been found right for you know just over, for
2: repeated over and over
0: again is right that there seems to be a general factor or what's called g namely how you do on so if you're solving a set of problems here like it tends to be predictive of how you will so, so Spearman found this, right? Like he, he noticed that you know how kids were doing in math was weirdly predictive of how they were doing in English and how they were doing in art, contrary to a lot of the uh, the cultural stereotypes we have, right? It, no, no, and, and there are there's variation in talent. I don't want and personality, and I'm not dismissing that.
1: Like separation is an illusion. Pardon me. Separating between the different um, um, ways we uh, perceive things, like separating between math and English and how we perform, is is
0: Well, there in this, I mean, there is there's there are some aspects that don't transfer,
1: right?
0: uh, But there does seem to be a general factor, yes, underlying all of them. Um, People don't like this because they tend to think of intelligence as sort of some sort of death sentence, right? Um, In fact, we've got we've got quite a bit of research coming out of Carol Dweck's uh, lab and others that how you think of your intelligence has a dramatic effect on how you're living your life. But the the main idea is that Right, you're a general problem solver. So this mic that I'm talking into is a special-purpose problem solver. It solves basically one problem. It Does it really well? In fact, it does it way better than I could do it. Right. And this glass is a special, uh, you know, purpose problem solver. The thing about you is you solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains across many contexts throughout a very long lifespan. And and what's impressive is that 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 we can measure that capacity. In fact, it's the, it's the single, again, this, people don't want to hear this, it's the single best measure we have in the life sciences for human beings. If I, if I, If I can only get one thing from you, one variable in order to try and predict as much of you as I could, I want to know your general intelligence because that will tell me, that'll give me the best set of predictions for you better than anything else. Personality variables come second, self-regulation abilities perhaps, Right, right. That and so for me, I wanted to understand like what's the center of this. And initially, I was just interested in this scientifically because I thought of this as the core of our cognitive agency. And I and I came to the conclusion uh, with the help of a lot of great people like Tim Willcrap, like Richards, Leo Ferraro, Anderson Todd, Richard Wu, like just a whole bunch of people that I've just been so lucky to work with and to continue to work with that. The core, and and, there, and this is convergent with other people's work, so it's not just my conclusion. But the core of this ability to be a general problem solver is your ability to zero in on relevant information and ignore irrelevant information. Um, and and that sounds sort of trivial, and it's it's trivial because your brain devotes so much energy and effort to it that at at the at, your, at the level of your personal ego, you're just taking for granted. You know, what's standing out for you, what's salient, what's grabbing your attention. Because technically, scientifically, the amount of information available to you in this room is astronomically fast. And then all the possible ways in which you could put together your behavior patterns to interact with it, also combinatorially explosive. And then all the information you have in your long-term memory and all the possible conati- combinations. Overwhelmingly vast. So this is what you don't do. You don't search at all, because you can't. Right? You can't search at all, and yet, and this is what you don't do either. You don't look at everything and determine if it's important to you or not, because that would take the lifetime of the universe. So somehow, and this is, sounds it sounds like a magic thing, miraculous. Your brain ignores most of the information. Yeah. Right. In those three domains and somehow zeroes in on the relevant information in a way that fits you to your environment so that you and 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 what it, and this is not a static thing so you have to think of the stop thinking of the mind and this is part of third generation coxide, as something in your head think about the mind more like darwinian fittedness like what makes an organism fit is not something in the organism or in the environment but how the organism and the environment fit together that's what relevance realization is. It's your evolving cognitive fittedness to your environment. And so I've done a lot of work on that and trying to understand that. And, and like I say, there's just increasing convergence. Like, sorry, this is not meant to be self promotional It's meant to be the opposite. Many people are coming to similar ideas about this being a central thing and that it's, it's a dynamic, self-organizing, self-optimizing process the insight i had i suppose is that i came to the conclusion and i have a lot of argument for it that that cognitive connectedness that makes us an intelligent agent is also the same sort of connectedness to ourself and the world and other people that's at the core of spirituality so that Your relevance realization machinery is inherently interested and invested because it's a self-organizing, self-optimizing process. Think about when you have insight. That's the relevance realization process feeding back on itself and restructuring itself. It's inherently interested and invested in this because it's just foundational. And it precedes you egoically. Relevance realization is there from the beginning, fitting your brain to the world. And then your sense of self and how meaningful your world is co-emerge out of this ongoing, evolving fittedness. And that and that's why it has this sort of primordial, mysterious depth to it. There's so what I'm trying to get at, although there's sort there's hard hard brain science, I think, emerging in dynamical system self-optimization. Just I can point your listeners to so many things, right? There, there, there's all these deeply spiritual aspects of this relevance realization that seem to line up with a lot of the traditional stuff. And then here's the final gem, and then I'll let you guys talk again. Sorry. What if what we're doing when we're overcoming foolishness and self-deception and becoming wise is enhancing that capacity for relevance realization so that the wise person is the super insightful, super connected, super able to make meaningful connections person well, that sounds both scientific yeah. and spiritual at the same time
2: yeah so what I want to talk ask you about is the at the practical level the practice of spirituality sure you've mentioned psychotechnologies yeah how how does that activate or or, or get this process of relevance realization going or, or evolving
0: so I mean you, you, we're doing it already but here here's where I think uh, the work of Keith Stanovich and, and others has had like a just profound Impact on me, Keith is already uh, was also. I think he's emeritus now, but he was also at U of at OISE uh, for the Center of Applied Cognitive Science. Really brilliant worker, um, researcher, um, and he's just amassed all this work. So remember, I told you you had, and, and this will directly answer your question. So
1: it,
0: it, it is directly pertinent. So remember how he uh, remember how I said we have this general measure of intelligence, right? So what he showed is like you can also give people all these tap all these experimental tests for how rational they are. So let's say rationality is about using your intelligence best. Remember I mentioned earlier that how you relate to your intelligence has a big impact on how adaptive it is, right? So what he was showing is that, right, how that, I think he'd be okay with me. This is my language, but I think I don't think it's imposing on him, so that's why I'm being a little bit cautious here. But I would say this, that those very processes that make us so adaptive our, our general intelligence, are also the ones that really drive and enhance our self-deception and make us vulnerable to self-deception. I recently gave a talk about this on how, as we're making AI more like us, we're making it more and more capable of, of foolishness. Hmm. So you can give people all kinds of rationality tasks. Uh, and and the, the, what, what's, what's going on in these rationality tasks? For example, I'll give you um, a, a, a proposition you tend to agree with very deeply. like I'm not taking a stand here on this issue, I'm just using an example like, abortion is right. Okay, So you find people who right, either agree or disagree with them. And then what you do is you give them two arguments. One is a valid argument that leads to the opposite of what they believe. You know, so they, let's say they believe abortion is right, and here's a valid argument that leads to the conclusion that it's wrong. And then you give them a very bad argument that leads to the conclusion they like, and you ask them to evaluate the argument. And people vary on that, because you can imagine what happens is, a lot of people don't, they they are, they find super salient, the product or the result of their cognition, and they're not stepping back and caring about or paying attention to the process. So if you don't pay attention to the process, you just go to the conclusion and, right? And then so your ability to evaluate arguments is very, very poor. Now that's very very dangerous, right? Because it means we can't use rational persuasion to alter people's beliefs. So, so that's an example of many kinds of t- tests. So you can do all these diff- many varied kinds of tests on how rational people are on. And what you what he found was just like the measures for intelligence, they form like a ge- there's a general factor of reasoning. They form a positive manifold. So then he asked. And this is why it makes him so brilliant, right? He then asks this really straight, now he can ask this really profound. I mean, a great scientist makes complex things simple, right? He asks this profound question so simply. Do the measures of intelligence, are they identical with measures of rationality? And the answer is no. Overwhelmingly no. So, on average, the correlation between the measures of your intelligence and the measures of your rationality are 0.3 where it varies from none, which is zero to one, which is maximum. So intelligence is necessary, but nowhere near sufficient for being rational. So what's the difference? And this is now the core of your question. What the psychotechnologies are doing is their ways of internalizing right, practices and skills and ways of training your attention that get you to best Apply your intelligence to paying attention to how you're using your intelligence. That sounds so trivial, right? But people, it takes a lot of practice and effort. So one thing he talks about is he, uh, which is directly relevant to uh, the ancient practice of Stoicism and modern you know, psychotherapeutic work and cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, but he talks about uh, uh, Jonathan Baron's active open-mindedness. Um, so. This is a psychotechnology that makes you more rational. It helps you overcome the ways in which your intelligence makes you self-discipline. So let me give you an example. I just flew back from Cuba. I told you that. Okay, so here's, here's what people do. Your, friend, your loved ones take you to the airport, right? And you're about to get on the plane, and they, oh, you know, safe trip, and text me when you're there. And basically what you're doing is saying, don't die, don't die, don't die, because you're terrified that they're going to die on this airplane. Now, why are you terrified? Well, think about it. Your, your brain is trying to calculate the probability of things. Remember when I talked about that explosion? If you were to use pure probability theory, trying to calculate the probability of events is vast, combinatorial explosion. You can't do it. So your brain does this these shortcutting technique. It uses, like, uh, a couple of what are called heuristics. It uses this as the availability heuristic. If I can easily imagine or remember something, I think of it as highly probable. Well, I can remember airplane crashes because they're on the news. And I can easily imagine it because my Homo erectus brain, does a big metal in the sky, no, it will fall, right? The other is how representative, how much does it sort of stand out? And then again, when there's a plane crash, people make it super salient. They call it a tragedy, a disaster. And so you go in and the availability heuristic, which is very adaptive for you, and the representative heuristic, very adaptive, this sort of frontline relevance realization, and they tell you, this person's going to die in the plane crash. And so you're, this is self-deception. Because you worry about them, and then without a second thought, you, get, you go into the garage, and you get in your car.
2: Chance of dying goes up. <laughs> which is,
0: you know, the North American death machine. Yeah. Right? And so active open-mindedness is about learning to see how these heuristic processes that are central to our adaptive intelligence, can be present in our day-to-day behavior, so right, right. So what you do is you look for you, you actively try to look for these, right, these heuristics misfiring. So uh, how often do you look for evidence that disconfirms one of your beliefs, as opposed to just finding evidence that confirms it? Yes.
1: So um, I just. I just have to say, I've been enjoying what you're saying, and it's in line with the questions that I've been sitting with um, sure. prior to my own um, um, awakening, in a way. Um, so my background is more uh, literature. and sure. more Yeah, like I, and I come from the Sufi background. Excellent. And so you're, the way you're talking, for me, is just giving language to questions that I've had in my mind for a long time. So th- your wording and everything you're yep. expressing is just, is just really answering very deep questions that are, probably even pre-language for me so I I don't even have any question right now but maybe more like um.
0: you don't know how often I get that comment okay
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: and so uh, I I, it's it always takes me a little bit aback Um, I get it informally in student evaluations of my courses but I get it like like in spontaneous situations like just stop and now people often talk about me giving them a vocabulary even for before and this is like or a grammar like we were talking about earlier before they could articulate it itself, but nevertheless, it resonates uh, very deeply with it them. Just,
1: it, it excites me because I'm—I just started my journey as a doctoral student in, in transpersonal psychology, right? And and that's where I'm like, okay, so I want to—I want to go into that space where science and spirituality meet. Yes, um, because I've been in the spiritual space for a long time, but because using your words, um, a lot of the way I my cognitive space was working. Um, I didn't have the language to yep. explain what was going on. And and, um, I, and I'm hoping that this will go to the recent work that you're doing. I've had experiences um, in the psychedelic space yep. where now I have the language. I, yep. And I, I get it. <laughs> so
0: I think that's excellent. I, I think that's a great point because um, I, I, I want to be clear that, that that the act of open-mindedness that I mentioned is just one psychotechnology where right. you step back and become aware of it. Another important one are mindfulness practices. So, whereas active open-mindedness is about paying attention to how your adaptive process can mislead you when you're making inferences, mindfulness is about how can those how can the salience machinery cause you to basically deceive yourself with at an attentional level. So, what you want to do is you want to find as many of these what I would say scientifically validated psychotechnologies, and try to see how we can align um, them together. And, and so there's a lot of work right now, and my lab is involved with it, and um, I'm just involved with a, a lot of really great people about it. Uh, Daniel Craig is doing some great work, Jensen Kim, um, Hannah Chow, Adela Abraham. I'm just, all these people I'm getting to work with. Are, I, I, I want to continually make it clear that I like I'm privileged to belong to, and to some degree, uh, lead a community, so we're we're really interested in this question of uh, uh, what's going on in psychedelic, both psychedelic experiences and spontaneous experiences that are similar. Um, and, and like, so what I'm particularly interested in, because what it what, uh, what it aligns with the most is um, uh, sort of the the aspect of the psychedelic experience or the mystical experience or the awakening experiences that align most with what we're talking about. Is when people get a particular kind of experience. Uh, the Griffith Lab did the same thing on this. There's a difference between a psychedelic experience and a mystical experience. And I think there's a difference between a mystical experience and then what L.A. Paul, they can recommend a book to you. Uh, L.A. Paul's book on transformative experience is literally the book. I got to meet Lori and uh, I went down to, uh, to Yale to lecture. She it was very privileged to lecture in her class on transformative experience. Um, and so, this is the key thing. So, what I'm interested in, and Steve Taylor does this, it talks a lot about this in his book, and so does Andrew Newberg. So, normally when people have an altered state of consciousness, they do the following thing. They go into their altered state of consciousness, let's consider a prototypical one, your dream. You come out of your dream, and you say, oh, that was weird, that wasn't real, this is real. And why do you say that? You say that because well, it doesn't fit together very well, it doesn't make sense, and it's not coherent with the rest of your life, right? So, this sort of coherent intelligibility. But people sometimes have this there's a subset of altered states of consciousness, higher states of consciousness, which can sometimes occur in psychedelic experiences. I don't want to talk about when and where, when and when it doesn't occur in psychedelic experiences, but they'll have an experience and they'll say, that is more real than this. And that it's that hyper-realness, what I call normativity because it's not, why I call it That is, it's not just it's more real. They feel like an obligation that they have to transform their lives and their identity so they can stay in contact. Remember that sense of connectedness? They, so they can stay in contact with that deeper realness. And so I was, it, it struck me, I mean, this is a really good scientific problem. It's like, why? Here's this bizarre experience. It doesn't fit into the rest of their life, they often come back and they say, it's ineffable. I can't tell you why it has no content to it. And yet they say it's more real. It should be, it should be discarded as, and so I was trying to get a, well, what's going on in these experiences that, right? And, and, and what is it that's making those experiences seem like you, you, want, you, want, you want to account for two things. First of all, why are people experiencing them as more real? And secondly, is that a legitimate experience? like because they're changing their lives right and, and so you want to know do those kinds of experiences can they be ultimately in you know enmeshed yeah. wait well, that's it yeah. can they be integrated with these other psychotechnologies could we I mean this sounds ridiculous but could we come up with you know a psychotech a set of technologies for these higher states of consciousness that would be nicely systematically working with active open mindedness and mindfulness, and could we create this systematic set? And so that's yeah, I'm I'm really interested in it. So the the thing I would really tell your listeners, uh, because I I, I feel, um, and and I'm not telling you what to do or anything, but I, I just feel a responsibility. Look, like the, the the transformation isn't in the
1: drug, right?
0: The drug isn't a. This mag- is important to mention. Yeah, this is the drug is not so, like like higher states of consciousness are tools, they're not toys, right? And and if if you're using them in in a situation where you have not put them within a a, a set of psychotechnological practices in which you're cultivating wisdom, you're really looking for ways in which you are prone to self-deception, if you stick that into those, there's a great chance
2: you're just going to bullshit yourself. And perpetuate
1: that self-deception. Tremendous. Deeper st- levels. Yeah.
2: yeah, Yeah. I'm reminded of, I think it was Jack Cornfield who wrote, uh, first the ecstasy then the laundry. Yeah, yeah. It could, because there's a real trapping in, in the pursuit of peak experience. Yes. And right? so you, you, you have that glimpse and then you want to go back to it because it's not sustained. That's right. And so you're, you're bringing this important point of uh, the mundane everyday practice. Yes. To bridge
0: that. So, so what you see in ancient traditions like, you know, the Neoplatonic tradition, which greatly informs Sufism, by the way, Right, is you see this, you see this tremendous you know, philosophical endeavor to, in a deeply integrated fashion, create a worldview that tries to articulate this enhanced sense of meaning and intelligibility. The cultivation of all of these practices, right, and, and, then, and then they're integrated with these existential moral practices. So the, the idea of being rational and mystical are not oppositional they're supposed to be deeply intertwined, mutually constraining and mutually con- informing each other.
1: And, and this was the split too um, in Sufism between the orthodoxy and the ecstatic poets. Right, right. Where, where, in in my opinion, the ecstatic poets poets were able to to mesh the rationality and the and the mystical. But because they were talking about the ineffable, then the orthodoxy were unable to um, accept them and were considered as heretics. I, I think this
0: is a very important point. I, I think that pattern gets repeated. Yes. Uh, it gets repeated, I think, also within Christianity. I mean, Meister Eckhart is almost, you know, he's pretty much, he dies before he gets condemned as a heretic. Um,
1: and even within science, there are, like, you know, some would consider what we're talking about as heretic in, in scientistic or scientism. Uh, yeah, so people
0: who, oh, so but this goes towards, there's all kinds of orthodoxies, right. right? And this goes towards your point. And this is another point I, I, I would want to make. And this is this is a broader issue about um, the ways in which I want to speak very carefully here because I'm not I'm a scientist and I love science right but there's ways in which the culture at large has been misled by science so what do I mean by that look what what science does right is science and this is what the scientific revolution what it 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 actually it, it actually comes out of and then sort of solidifies and exemplifies a trend that had been go, growing in uh, Western civilization since, the, you know, around the beginning of the 13th century. What am I trying to get at? What science does is enhance your capacity for propositional knowledge, right? So propositional knowledge is your knowledge of what we call facts. And People, you know what, a lot of the people that are, oh, I'm, you know, rationality this, you know, on YouTube, and they talk about facts. Ask them what a fact is. Is it made out of matter? Is it made out of... What is a fact? What do you mean by a fact? Right? What's the metaphysics of a fact? Well, they'll say, well, things are true. Okay. Well, what do you mean by true? And that what they're basically talking about is propositional knowledge is knowledge that something is the case. So what they're talking about is that they have propositions that they consider uh, are well-evidenced and well-argued. Right? And that's propositional knowledge. And so that is a form of knowing that is that is centered on belief. That is why belief has become so central in our culture. We understand everything in terms of belief. It's why ideology is so powerful because what ideology is is the attempt to re, is the attempt to replace spirituality with sets of beliefs that are supposed to be doing. But the problem is for all the terrific importance of propositional knowledge it's not the only kind of knowing we have
1: it can be dogmatic
0: well not only that's dogmatic it, it, it which is true I uh, don't deny that but I think what's happening in the case of the teachers you're talking about right is that they try to represent another kind of knowing that has to, 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 to a very large degree been sort of quashed in our culture and it, it's it's so let me let me there let me give you some examples in addition to knowing that something is the case you have you have what's called procedural knowledge you know how to do things for example you know how to ride a bike which isn't the same thing as having a bunch of beliefs right you know how to ride a bike in fact you you'll find a great deal of difficulty in actually putting into effective words what it takes to ride a bike this is this is one of the gifts of the work in ai because we thought, you know, oh, it's all about propositional knowledge. Getting computers to do propositional knowledge was—it's hard, but we've gotten really good at that. Getting computers to skills, like knowing how to catch a baseball, that turned out to be way harder than we thought because that procedural knowledge is much more embodied. It's much more about that direct online fitting of the brain to the world. But in addition to that, because you're a conscious being, Consciousness is not the same thing as belief at all, right, because most of your beliefs are unconscious. You, for example, believe that Africa is a continent. You don't have to hold it in your mind or in consciousness, right? Because you're a conscious being, you have perspectival knowing. You know what it's like to have this experience right now. What it's like, what does water, here, I'm having a drink right now. You know what it's like to drink water. And and, and notice how ineffable that is. How would you explain that to somebody? The
2: direct experience—that's the direct experience.
0: Yeah, the embodied, the embodied direct experience, and and it's it's a a perspectival knowing. It's 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 how is your salience landscape being shaped and altered, and what's standing out to you, and then what state of consciousness are you entering into, and this is all not captured by your beliefs, and then finally, overlapping with the procedural, and perspectival is participatory knowing. This is the knowing you have not by altering your beliefs or even altering your state of consciousness. You have it by altering your identity. It's the knowing you get by binding your identity to something and letting your identity be transformed in conjunction with how that thing is transforming. So hopefully this is, and this is why this metaphor was used in, in the mystical traditions, this is hopefully how you know the person you love right? You don't just have beliefs about them. That's creepy. You don't just have skills about how to work with them. You should have skills. You know what it's like to be with them, but there's something deeper. You have become a person you could not have been or become other than in your relationship to them. And also, they have become in their relationship to you. And so you know them by how differently you know yourself and the world in knowing them. Does that does that make sense? It kind of
2: it reminds me of sort of that Buddhist notion of um, the, the dissolving a self and other.
0: Yes. It, it's, so it's very much that it's knowing by identifying, it's knowing by being at one, it's knowing by sort of being dynamically coupled to something so that you're getting reciprocal revelation. And this goes to, like this is at the core of what third generation cog science, sort of its Heideggerian uh, framework. This this notion of a deep, uh, 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 of a deeper kind of truth. Sorry, that uh, that's going to make the wrong people in California happy. But w- <laughs> what I, what I mean by that is like there's propositional truth, which is can be deep and profound, like E equals MC squared. But there's also aletheia, which is is a Greek word that Heidegger used. There's a sense of right before I can make sure my beliefs correspond to the world. I have to be connected to the world in the right way. There's this the relevance realization stuff again. Yes. So that, right, as the world discloses itself, it draws something from me and right. And then that draws something from the world. They're mutually adducing. They're mutually drawing from each other. And this is all part of what's right. And and this can also be put into very scientific language about complex complex systems and dynamical systems. But the basic philosophical idea is there's this reciprocal uh, revelation, reciprocal, you know, revealing of self and world. Now what's interesting is my, my good friend Mark Lewis, uh, recommend his work highly, by the way. He's one of the people that brought this whole dynamical systems approach into neuroscience, also at UFT. He's one of the he wrote memoirs of an addicted brain. He's one of the foremost people on addiction. And what's interesting, he's got a theory of addiction that's the opposite, which is what he calls reciprocal narrowing. So instead of addiction being thought of as just biological by the way that's just not true we have this model that addiction is this biological craving that your Thank system you system has, right <laughs> that, that that's just insufficient amount i uh, like I, I was at a conference in july society for philosophy and psychology and they just one uh, one of the sub things just that's the wrong model of addiction right because it doesn't explain a lot of things it doesn't explain the fact that a lot of people just spontaneously that's so
1: disempowering
0: it is disempowering and it doesn't explain, again, that like like a lot of people will just spontaneously stop being addicted when they enter their 30s. Um, people will, uh, like, you know, all the people that were using heroin when during Vietnam, and then they return to North America, and they just stop. They don't have to go through treatment. They don't have to go through rehab. So he has instead this sort of what you may call anti alathea model of addiction. What happens is, right, because the, the uh, addict salience landscape is being altered by the drug, the options in the world narrow a bit, and because the options in the world narrow a bit, their right their sense of self gets a little more rigid. And you see what's happening? It's like a vicious cycle. And as the self becomes more rigid, the world narrows. And as the world narrows, the self becomes more rigid, and you get this reciprocal narrowing.
1: And the cognit like their cognition becomes impeded.
0: Yeah, it becomes you lose cognitive flexibility, and and that's exactly also what's happening in the things like PTSD and things like that, right? And that's why the psychedelic experience can be so liberating because what it can do is it can throw the brain into a state that it's not normally in and break that vicious cycle. But it's gotta be it's gotta be coordinated with therapy. It's gotta be coordinated with cognitive restructuring. Flexibility is great, but it has to be it has to be that engine has to be tapped in insight and and a change in the sense of identity. Look, we're we're always we're continuously in a process of co-identification. Look, I'm here right now I'm assuming an identity. I'm the professor, blah, blah, the scientist. I'm assigning identities to you. Here's a glass. I'm assuming an identity as a glass grabber. This object is a water holder for me, even though it's a million other things, scientifically molecules and all kinds of electromagnetic fields. We're always, always, always in this agent arena relationship. We're constantly in this you know, bi directional fashion, creating identities in the world and identities. Assigning meaning. Assigning, and that's what that meaning is. It's not it's not in your beliefs. It's in the the way in which your world is either reciprocally opening up because your sense of agency is being opened up and the world is being opened up, or it's narrowing down in a self deceptive, self destructive fashion.
1: And that's why I was enjoying like an when we first started our talk, like you, you gave some amazing history, historical context. But I was also thinking about um, what about those people that their, cog- like their cognition is impeded and their sense of self is so, becomes so rigid and so small. Mm-hmm. And you know they're unable to break free from whatever cycle that they're stuck in.
0: So, I mean, if, that's the, 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 the okay. <laughs> that's a really, really important question. And uh, I'm hesitating precisely because I have so much to say about it. I've, I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to. And like,
1: that's the one question that was sitting with me when you were talking in the beginning. I was like, how can I <laughs> bring that in?
2: It, it's that inertia, right? Yeah. When you're stuck. Right. Like the exis- exis- existentially, At, you, know, you know, midlife crisis, core life crisis, whatever you want to call it, you know. And, I and call it existential inertia, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I
0: love
1: that. <laughs> I'll use that.
0: <laughs> so let, let's talk about, let's talk about, let's talk about this. Let, let's Let's devote some time to it if you're okay with that. Because I think. This is, this is where these broad issues about wisdom and transcendence and the meaning crisis, this is where it comes to people. When people get this fundamental stuckness, barrenness, emptiness, voidness, futility. right? Uh, I, and by the way, Thomas Nagel's right, all the arguments people give for meaningless, none of them are logically valid. I, well, I'm, I'm so insignificant in time and space. So what? Like if I blew you up to the size of a galaxy, are you better? Like, does that do anything for you? It's not right? helpful. It's not. It, no, that it, it, right. Or well, what I do, what I'm doing, doesn't matter a million years from now. Well, the argument's symmetrical. What they're thinking of you a million years from now doesn't matter to you, right? So he he points out that all of these arguments are not actually logically valid. They don't they don't lead to. So it's not that people's reasoning is actually leading them into this. I think that's basically a form of rationalization so i think you guys have put your finger on the actual issues what are like what's going on in this existential inertia i i I would say there's another thing there's an existential indecisiveness so let's talk quickly about both so um first to to get we were talking about that asian arena i talk about this in one of my talks but right
2: there's a thing where,
0: like, there's a difference again because of the participatory perspective. There's a difference between believing something and actually it, it, it being something you live within. Uh, let me a lived experience. Lived experience, but I want I want to really deepen that, all right? Because uh, I have I, I I appreciate how you're introducing it. I have some criticisms of how some people use that. I, I think that gets used often romantically yeah. as, as a way of. Uh, And you have to be careful here, because I'm not saying that everybody uses it this way. I'm not saying that. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is some people use this as a way of doing what you mentioned earlier, Adrian, right? What they're doing is they're collecting important experiences Mm -hmm. of suffering or, you know, or or peak. You know, people look for tail ends of the distribution that will guarantee their uniqueness, right? And And narcissism. A special special uniqueness
1: that's the right, word narcissism right
0: is 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 a response to the meaning crisis. that's why narcissism is becoming such a problem for us. So I, so I want I want to deepen that notion so let, let, let let's say like sometimes this will happen to me like like you're reading a novel perhaps, or like for me, I'm reading like a particular philosopher like Whitehead or something. And I'm finding the arguments very persuasive and I'm getting all kinds of beliefs, right and it's it's very propositional is that you know? But then, then there's this thing, and it goes from being, like, propositional to being adverbial. I start seeing the world white, in a whiteheadian way. I start feeling and experiencing it. And I start to understand and experience myself in a whiteheadian fashion. Now I'm living the worldview. It's viable to me as opposed to, right? And so I'm really interested in, in what makes, because it's related to the meaning crisis, what makes a worldview viable like that? And i think harry frankfurt's work is really helpful here he talks about um, whether or not something is he calls it uh, unthinkable i don't like that word but that's his term so let me give you an example my son my my older son lives with me right now right Uh, and so i can imagine kicking him out and i can make all kinds of inferences about what i would hey save more money the apartment would be cleaner right so in one sense, I can imagine, I can make inferences, but it's unthinkable to me. Because I can't make it a viable option. I can't get myself into that process of identifying the world. and I, I can't get my identity and the identity of the world to be resonant in such a fashion that I could be the kind of person that would kick my son out. Talk about
2: the fittedness. Yeah, the that fittedness.
0: Fit. Right. So it just doesn't work. It's not viable for me. Now, that's positive. Right? And that has to do with love. Because, can think about it because, you know, you know when I was talking about that reciprocal revelation in Aletheia. As the world is revealing itself to me, I'm revealing myself to it. And, and those are deeply interpenetrating processes. That's also, that's also love. That's why love has been used as a metaphor for this kind of participatory knowing. Right? In fact, if you do that with people, that's what Aaron's work showed. If you get people to do mutually accelerating re- revelation about each other, disclosure, you start to you disclose a bit about yourself and then I disclose a bit more about me and then that makes you... And if we start getting into that, then that's how you get people to fall in love, whether it's sexual or friendship, right? So there's that love element, that, that reciprocal connectedness, right? Now that's a positive version of it. And I, I remember talking to... Uh, asking Maury Paul about this and she thought it was a, a, a good good point. Um, I said, but isn't there a negative version of that? Where, right, like, the, uh, like, and I remember bringing it up with Mark, I said, Mark, you've got the negative version, where's the positive? And so I could also say to Frankfurt, you've got the positive version, where's the negative? Can't that reciprocal relationship so bind you in, and this was your point, though. so bind you in that you can't, right, you can believe what you need to believe, and you can imagine it, but you can't unfold, you can't, re- you can't, you know, reverse the direction of the reciprocal relationship and that's existential inertia you get locked into a world that's that's the existential inertia
2: which is different from indecisiveness you're saying? right so the
0: indecisiveness is another thing so let's call let's call that an existential inertia and, and I want you to think about how important that is to therapy because when people come into therapy they know they have they know what they have all the right beliefs about where they should be. And they can imagine it. They can make, make mental images of where they need to be. And that,
1: they can probably see their patterns, too. They just...
0: But they can't get there. Yeah. They don't have the know-how. Yeah. They don't have the perspective of the, and the participatory knowing. Okay, let's do the existential and decisiveness, Adrian. And this goes to the heart of Valori's work, L.A. Paul's work and transformative experience. <clears throat> she talks about transformative experiences, and, 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 and they have this following kind of characteristic. She has this wonderful... Uh, the Gedanken experiment philosophers do this right they they put you in bizarre world and you play with it and then once you sort of agree with oh that makes sense then they say aha so this is what she does she says imagine the following your friends come up to you and they give you indubitable evidence that they can turn you into a vampire do you do it and and, and you go what <laughs> and she says well and here's the problem you face you don't know what it's what it's going to be like. Remember the perspectival knowing? To be a vampire until you're a vampire. So you you don't have that perspectival knowing, right? And you don't have the participatory knowing. You don't know who you're going to be because when you become a vampire, your priorities and your sense of identity and your sense of agency, all all that's going to be changed. So here's the problem you face. You're ignorant. You're deeply ignorant of the perspectival knowledge that you don't yet have. The perspectival, sorry, the participatory knowledge that you don't yet have. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, I don't do it. But then you don't know what you're losing. You don't know. You don't know. Sorry, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what. It, you could be missing the best thing ever.
2: Oh well, then I do it.
0: Ah, but then you don't know what you're losing. You don't know what you're gonna. You don't know what you're gonna. See? And and the thing is, you can't. You can't do. So we. Typically, what we thought is. Well, what we do in situations of uncertainty is we, we, we go, we're Bayesian, right? We calculate the probabilities, we calculate the utilities. But you can't calculate the probabilities. You can't calculate the utilities because you're absolutely ignorant. So what do you do? And so she said this is, the thing is, this is what she calls a transformative experience. When you go through this radical transformation of your perspectival and your participatory knowing. So... People also face that when they're in therapy. They face this existential indecisiveness. Well, sh- they, they're, they're, they're stuck in inertia, but they're also contemplating changing. They don't know how, that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is, well, what will I be losing when I go over there? What will I, I don't know what I'm missing, and I don't know what I'm gonna be, <gasps> so they're, they're existentially indecisive. And you see, we used to have, you mentioned the Sufis, we used to have these broadly powerful traditions you know, in which we had institutions and traditions and communities that gave people support and guidance and structure through transformative experience. So, and then that, yeah. that, all so the way. that
1: they plunge into the unknown. That's right. what it is. Yeah.
0: But they don't again, like we said with the psychedelic, they don't plunge into it, like, uh, like, uh, like in an autodidactic fashion. Right. Autodidactism is, uh, you know, it's the worst way to do science. It's the worst way to make literature. It's the worst way to do poetry. It's also the worst way to do spirituality. Right. Right. And, and so. People, so I, 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 but then I, Lori sort of does that and, and she really wrestles, and, and her point, which is the brilliant point of the book, is like our our no our normal notions of standard rationality just don't apply to transformative experiences. And Lori's no romantic or like she, she's a hard line. It's
1: weird. funny that you use that word autodidact because I consider myself an autodidact and that's what hindered me from my own progress. Yes. So, yes, yes,
0: absolutely. You you only, uh, mo- most of your cognitive flexibility comes from your ability to internalize the perspective of others and to internalize psychotechnologies from your culture at large, right? And if you're an autodidact, that's often. That that self-organizing adaptive intelligence just runs in its own echo chamber. Mm -hmm. So I I got really interested in this problem, the transformative experience problem, and how psychedelics and mystical experiences. So I started thinking, okay, Laurie's right. You can't sort of logic or probability your theory in the way through the so what do people do? Do they just do the Kierkegaardian leap of faith?
1: I was about to say that The <laughs> leap of faith. <laughs>
0: they do a
2: test drive, or they they do little micro experiments.
0: Excellent, exactly. So this is so so. Let's do this. So the point about the 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 Gedanken experiment, right? Is you're not going to vampire. But then Laurie says, but you face real decisions like this in your life. Here's one: have a child. And if you haven't had a child, and I have had two, you don't know what it's like until you've had one. And you don't know who you're going to be because you're going to be a different person after you, if you're a good parent, right? Here's an, Or decide to enter into a romantic relationship with somebody. If all that participatory knowing we talked about is going to happen, you're going to be a different person in a different world. You don't know what you're losing. You don't know what you're missing, right? And then I, I pointed something out to Lori, which she, she agreed with. I said, you know what? Every every developmental change that the brain's going through and through all of our cognitive development, we're facing these transformative things. And she said, yeah, it's it's that pervasive. So let's go back to Adrian's point because I think it's excellent. What do people do when they think about having a child? He said, like they do the test run. So I, I looked around and so what people do is that they get a pet. And they do weird things with the pet. Like they get they'll take family pictures with it and they'll take it on vacation with them and 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 so they do this they do this thing. Or and, you know, I, I, my, my partner and I were talking about this when we were away in Cuba. It's like one of the things people do in order to decide to get in a relationship is they go on a trip with somebody. And I thought, OK, what's going on here? What's going on here? And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. So what people are doing is they're engaging in a, in a very serious kind of play, right? So think about like how a, a, a play object is, has two identities the plastic sword is a sword but it's not a sword so you can play with it to see what it's like but it doesn't have the danger so same thing with the pad same thing with the trip right so it's this it's this it's an analogy but it's not a propositional analogy it's an inactive analogy you're acting it out and and it and it, it, it takes tremendous skill like a good analogy it's got to it's got to get it's got to get the balance between the two worlds right it's got to get a, it's got to keep you in contact with the world you're in right now cuz you know you don't, you, you don't want to lose it without Right, without being able to judge, but it's got to give you enough. It's got to trigger enough of that perspectival and participatory knowing, so you get a real good taste. And think of the word we use, taste. Mm. Right, a, a taste of that world, and, and you and you got to get it perfectly balanced. And I realized that the like that's one of the things that uh, was going on with ancient gnosis. Gnosis was this participatory knowing. It was supposed to bring about transformation by trying to get give people these inactive analogies. This symbolic way of interacting so that you could play, right? Now, you needed to do one other thing. Let's go back. So that's going to deal with the indecisiveness by giving you the test run. What about the inertia? Well, here's an idea that uh, comes from sort of the central Plato tradition, Platonic tradition, but we talked about it already, right? Giving people psychotechnologies that get that that process of reciprocally opening the world up Plato had a word for this, anagogae, the ascent, right? And what you do is, and Plato had this great insight that if you get the psychotechnologies lined up in the right way, they will become mutually reinforcing. So what I want is I want psychotechnologies that reduce my inner conflict. Because it, it's the the the, the 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 different motivational centers are what skew my salience landscape and make me self-deceptive. So here's a typical one. You have... You have hyperbolic discounting. You tend to find present stimuli very salient and future ones very non-salient. That's why people procrastinate. That's why dieting is such a failed in industry, right? <laughs> this Re- is recidiv- amazing. Yeah, the yeah. recidivism rate yeah. is ninety-five percent. They Absolutely. only they have a five percent success rate. They like rake in billions of dollars, right? <laughs> um, so, right. What what, what you want to do is you want to make sure, and this is what what, what was lack what, what Stanovich was noting was people was lacking. See, your intelligence makes things quickly salient to you. Remember the airplane crash? right? You've got to retrain your salience landscape so that it will it will tend to zero in on the real patterns as opposed to the illusory or mm-hmm. false patterns. And that takes a, a, a lot of practice. And so the, one of the ways you do that, Plato saw, is by working to try and get an optimal relationship between what you find salient but also what you find true. So trying to get that part of you that urgently connects you to the world talking to the part of you that can pick up on more abstract but real patterns. And now what Plato saw, right, is as that internal conflict goes down, my self-deception goes down. Because if my salience landscape isn't radically skewed away from my truth landscape, if they're much more talking to each other in consonant, then I'm much less likely to engage in self-deceptive, but here's the, here's the insight. As I reduce my self-deception by achieving inner peace, and that's what was behind the stupid hallmark card, right? <laughs> we want inner peace. It's this idea that what I want, right, I have this meta drive to try and optimize these various adaptive ways of interacting with the world so that I get an optimal grip on the world, right? But what Plato saw is as I get better at reducing this, Inner conflict, I start to see the world more clearly.
2: What does that look like in practice? So I'm having a hard time. Uh, what's the exercise that Plato was referring to? Is it inner dialogue? Like how do you? So,
0: so for, for that's the thing. You're not going to find it in Plato because Plato is enormously Philosophy. coy. <laughs> yeah, uh, you'll find it more in, uh, in Plotinus, and you'll find it um, also like in the Sufi tradition. You'll find all these practices. So one of the things that you should be going to a mindfulness practice for is not relaxing, not feeling better. I, I'm actually going to be on, on a TV show in the fall of Beaverton where I represent a scientist talking about mindfulness opposed to people who are sort of practicing mindfulness to feel better. And And people.
1: there is actually a disenchantment among people. I've heard people actually refer to mind- mindfulness as, oh, this is bullshit now.
0: That's right. Right. So the, there's, and, and that's because, you know, Mindfulness is a net, it should be about education. It's not a vacation, right? Right. It's not about relaxing. You should be going into mindfulness to reduce. And that
1: that's true. Mindfulness is to
0: yeah yeah to reduce. You should you should see a significant reduction reported to you by others in your self deception. That's what it starts to look like, and you start to see situations and people differently. Now, as you start to see people and situations differently, you know what that means you start to do? You start to understand yourself better and differently. So you now start to get better at aligning the psyche, which then means it's better for you to see and understand. And that's how you can start to get that positive feedback cycle going. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes.
1: And I'm just also thinking about... um, spirituality also, that some people even use that as a self-deception mechanism. Totally. Where no. it just becomes a bypass, and, and you, don't, you don't go into um, the, like your inner world and to reduce that inner conflict.
2: Part, I think part of this, it's, it's how it's sold to us. I mean, right. for yeah. me, That's what I is. started diving into meditation practice only about three years ago, so I consider really? myself very early sure. on the path. Sure. But the way that it's often taught, or the way I interpret it, it is that escapist yeah, version of yeah. meditation.
0: That's that's part of that's part of a sort It's been of, my journey seven years,
1: Adrian. <laughs>
0: what's part of this sort of crypto romanticism? I mean that as a as a as a philosophical cultural project, not romantic love, although that's where it came from too. Like romanticism, the idea, right? Uh, uh, of you know that uh, that um, how can I put it? Here's how I would put it in a, in, a, in, a, in a somewhat simplistic slogan. The idea that you have a true self. Not in, not in a Buddhist sense or like the, the inner machinery, by, but you're, the, you have an autobiographical self that mm-hmm. you have to be true to. right? And this is this is the opposite of the actual revolution. The actual revolution is the aspirational self. Socrates was trying to help us realize and cultivate and through wisdom and transformation come to our true self it's you're not born with it as as a finished identity that you constantly have to hearken to and then what and then your project is to show to the world how unique and special right that that, that 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 that's that inner self that you're born with is so the project isn't the project shifts from how do i realize and become my true and better self to the project of how do i continually demonstrate to the world myself what it is and how unique it is. And so what people do I think is they, they collect spiritual experiences. And then they're like they're are these bejeweled
2: glamours
0: that they put on their narcissistic shelf. And um, yeah, I think I, I mean I think that's just a disaster. But if you go back to what we we're talking about, if you if you get a community that gives you this serious play And then gives you the The
1: cognitive tools.
0: The cognitive tools, that serious play, that inactive analogy, that enacted anagogic transformation, then you can bring about a transformative experience. And people are doing this spontaneously. And they're doing it, and they're doing it. Let let, let me give an example, because this is so bizarre, right? So, what are some of the most secular countries in the world? The Scandinavian countries. So, in Scandinavia, there's a role playing uh, style called Jeep form that has emerged. And so the point about it is this is like uh so you know what you know what a role play game is, right? Dungeons and Dragons. And then you have LARPing, where you live action role playing, right? LARPing, I should say, right? And then this is one thing more removed. So what you have is you have a bunch of people, they come into a situation, they're given a situation they have to act out. And then the dungeon master is actually like a director. And what the like a movie set director, he'll cut a scene or he will say switch or switch roles or he'll give you a prop and say this is a sword, now use it. And what you're doing is you're acting out scenes. And you're acting out scenes that are actually real life scenes. And this is what you actually are, are striving for. You're trying to get a phenomenon called bleed. So what you want is you want the scene you're acting out to be similar enough, analogically similar enough, but open you up, induce enough flexibility in play that you'll the, the line between what you're playing and your real life bleeds mm-hmm. so that you can do now, if you would ask these people, "Are you religious?" They go, "What are you talking about?" But you say, "But why are you pursuing this?" I mean, from the outside, this looks to me like a spiritual practice. This is a radical practice that's done in a highly ritualized situation with a community of support and desire. You know, and it's it's not escapist. It's like it's often like deeply disturbing and troubling to these people, but they're seeking genuine. Release from this indecisiveness, existential indecisiveness, and existential inertia. That's the kind of thing.
2: Is this unconscious? You suspect they're not going and knowing that that's what they're doing it for.
0: So I think it's 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 semi-conscious. It's it's sort of like it's mythologically aware to them. They they got they they know that this is meaning. Look, like think about it. What we were talking about that inner peace. You have this. Plato's great insight, that in addition to whatever you want, you want, to, you want to experience it with inner peace. If I said to you, I'll give you tremendous fame, but it will rip you apart inside. Do you want it? You go, no, I don't think so. Right? But there's another one. Remember, in addition to any peace, I want to be in contact with the real patterns. Same thing. People have a meta desire to whatever they have, right? They want it to be Real. So I'll do this in class with my students. I'll, I'll say, "How many of you?" I'll probably, uh, if I do this too much, I'm going to spoil it, and because they'll, they'll, they're students, they'll, they'll start just uh, screwing around with me. But um, generally, I'll, I'll say, "How many of you are in like deeply satisfying personal relationships right now?" Put up your hand. Well, surprisingly, a lot of them put up their hands, so contrary to all the complaining we hear, right? And then I'll say, "Now the following. I want you to imagine. It's like Laurie Paul's Gedanken experiment. Imagine that your partner is cheating on you." And finding out that they were cheating on you would absolutely end the relationship that you have right now. How many of you want to know if your partner's cheating on you? Keep your hands up. 95% of the people keep their hands up. They'd rather have the real suffering than the fake happiness. Yes. Right? And so I think the same thing's going on with this jeep forming. This they're they're finding that they're get they're getting a bit of that analogic play. They're getting a bit of that anagogic you know, reciprocal revelation. They're getting that opening up, right? They're getting that that, per, that transformation and their perspectival and participatory knowing. They're getting that gnosis. And they, they're feeling deeply connected to themselves and to each other and to their world. Now, they don't think of that as the hallmark of spirituality. They think that spirituality is about believing in supernatural entities and seeing strange lights. But and- I think that's the key of spirituality because they're going through these radical transformations of consciousness and cognition, community, and communing with others, designed to bring about enhanced relevance realization, enhanced insight, wisdom, cognitive flexibility, changing their very patterns of co-identification, how they identify others and their world and themselves.
1: And it's like awareness expansion. And to go back to that question you mentioned, is it is it religious? No, it's not because there's no dogma.
0: <laughs> right. So I, I I I make a distinction uh, between religion and religio. So religio is uh, a Latin word. And it is one of the two contenders for the etymological origin of the word religion. But religio actually means connectedness, to connect things, to bind things together. So that sense of binding, I think, was crucial. Now, I think what, what, what goes on in religion is you also get credo, mm-hmm. I believe, right? And you get these propositional statements. Now, the point of the propositional statements is to, originally, is to, is to, to create a community and to create practices and psychotechnologies. Literatures about psychotechnologies to help people, but the problem is, right? You can get a credal oppression where the credo crushes uh, the religio,
1: and oh. and brings about rigidity and increases inner conflict and. Right, and so <laughs> what we
0: get is we get we get the, another thing that is uh, a, a terrific sign. So we talked about narcissism, and these two are related, although most people won't see them initially
1: as related. I do see that connection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But so, oh well, good. Okay so the narcissism meaning crisis, and then here's another thing that's connected to the meaning crisis
0: and also connected to narcissism. and that's the rise of fundamentalism. Yes, absolutely. right. So fundamentalisms are, well, okay, belief's not enough. So what I'll do is I'll just believe even more. like I'll and I'll pour everything into belief and, and I'll make credo absolutely like the the, the, the complete identity. Uh, and so if like I'll often like when I when I talk to people, uh-huh, from a religious background, I'll often say to when I get into discussion, and I do this respectfully because I really respect people who belong to religious traditions because I understand, like, what sorry, that sounds arrogant. I don't mean it to be. I'm trying to say I understand in an appreciative fashion what they're doing, what they're trying to do. But I'll often say to them, don't tell me what you believe, tell me what you practice, and tell me how those practices are making you more wise. Yes. Yeah more compassionate, more capable of self-transcendence, and more capable of transforming the world to deal with the situations we're dealing with. Don't tell me what you believe. Tell me what you practice. It.
1: And this is an important distinction, just because I come from a, like, I was brought up in a more religious environment, and that's the struggle. Um, growing up, a lot of young people um, just are um, given all these dogmas and, yep. and instructions, and it's like, is so divorced from the reality of every, uh, the everyday, and so the young generation becomes so disenchanted. So they either turn into um, complete um, uh, nihilism, or the other side is fundamentalism.
0: Yes, the,
2: the interesting move for me, coming from pretty secular, um, yeah. you know, uh, upbringing towards a more open, mystical, you know, ex- explorer. Yeah, I think the move for me was to shift away from asking what's true, to how is this useful? Yeah, right. It is literally the the, the bringing it to the practical ground it get in practice was, was the move that helped open me to something that was uncomfortable and different and scary and, and start to experiment.
0: Well, I, I think, I think that's the key. I mean, I think the summit of propositional knowledge is what we call knowledge, scientific knowledge. I think the summit of the procedural perspectival, participatory stuff is what we call wisdom. And those are not the same thing. You don't get wisdom by getting a lot of knowledge. Knowledge is relevant to wisdom. But it's like the relationship between intelligence and rationality. It's unnecessary, but not sufficient. Um, so I would, I would, I would, I would say useful. But you want useful again, and I, I'm hoping this is helpful to you. I'm not trying to step on your toes, right? But you want useful to be broadened in this sense of useful for helping you overcome patterns of foolishness, and useful for helping you, you know, engage in patterns of flourishing. Things that are useful for the cultivation of wisdom. Are you getting better at seeing in when you're in messy situations? Are are, are are do you have sets of practices that help you zero in on what's relevant and what's real? See, so I understand what 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 true, but if we talk about real in that authentic sense, that sense of I've got a connectedness to the world that's opening up me and the world in an ongoing fashion, a, a, a fashion that in which I can there's good reason and good evidence to believe that you know i'm, I'm becoming a wiser more compassionate uh, more engaged and effective person right then that's what i say usefulness means uh, the, the, and i hope you find that helpful because totally. the, the yeah. problem with the, the word useful is it's it's, it's broad yeah. and it can just mean again it can be it can be sucked into that narcissistic project right. it can be useful for promoting my self-image right and then, then it undermines Uh, The very uh, the very thing we're trying to talk about here, I
1: think. I think useful in a more like meaningful, profound
2: way. I think. In a in a relational sense. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I would say in
0: existential uh, and sapiential sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you are if you if you have sets of practices that take you through the unavoidable and indispensable transformative experiences that you need to encounter and to go through, they're unavoidable in your life. Someone dies. You leave, right? You lose your job. You decide to enter into a relationship. All these things we talk about. Like, do you have right cognitive practices, consciousness practices, community practices, character building practices that reliably take you through the in a way in which the the field of flourishing life is expanded for you and the lives you touch? That, for me, is what I would say usefulness is. So I'm I'm a little bit. Critical of people who have—that's uh, some points where I, I'm a little bit critical of, like what Jordan Peterson has to talk about. Where I, I, I wish Jordan would get a little bit clearer on his pragmatic theory, uh, because I—I I, I, want to debate him again at some point.
2: Yeah. No, it—it it, it brings it back to the narcissistic tendency of, I think, a lot of spiritual circles. It's, yes. It's that pursuit of selfing. It keeps defining and actually making the self more rigid.
0: Yes. Yes. And and it's. Um, this is why again like you you got to so so the struggle that you're going through for example is where do I go to get like a community because you need you need many people committed together to this like the jeep formers regular reliable meeting and getting together where do I find a community where do I that has a systematic set of psychotechnologies and exemplar role models that are at different developmental stages in life so that as I move through those developmental stages, I have a narrative understanding of what's going on. Where do you have that? Well, the only place where we typically had that, up until now, are religion, right? And we, when we tried secular alternatives, we tried ideologies in the 20th century, and that drenched the world in blood, right? So we, don't want, we know that that's not right, that's not working, and many of us, the traditional religions don't work for a lot of the reasons. We've articulated, but we need something very much like what they did. This is why I'm critical of people like Dawkins and Harris, right? Because yes, I think I mean I I consider myself a non-theist. That that I think both the theists and the atheists have presuppositions that are shared that I reject. Uh, And at some point, I'd like to talk about that. Not today, but at (laughs) great length. But what see the thing about people like Dawkins is they concentrate on the false beliefs. It's like yes, okay, great, but you know, and and this is what I I sometimes point this out. You know, you have to get what Nietzsche talked about, right? When he said God is dead, right? The madman runs into the marketplace, and he's telling, who's he talking to? He's not talking to the theists. He's talking to the atheists. He says, "You don't know what you've done. you've, You've wiped away the sky. We're forever falling. You don't know what you've done by killing God. You don't know. You've thrown away all this axial legacy, all this machinery." And you, and you don't know how to replace it. It's the most
1: misunderstood statement. Pardon it's me? the most misunderstood statement. Yes.
0: yes. So, I mean, Nietzsche's great project is to try and, but the problem is he was too much of an autodidact, right? And that's my great criticism of Nietzsche, right? Is, his project was, I mean, he's, he's a great prophet of the meaning crisis, and his project was to try and create an alternative form of spirituality and an alternative mythology, the mythology of the Ubermensch. I have lots of criticisms of that, but people need, you need to see, though, what he was What he was on about wasn't that people had silly false beliefs. He was on about, no, no, we're facing the meaning crisis, and we've got to do something about this, because if we don't, it's just going to get worse, and it's going to get worse, and people are going to turn to fundamentalisms and to totalitarianisms and ideologies and escapisms, and we're going to get you know, what kind of the situation we're in now, today.
2: So I'm just... Being mindful of time, I want to ask you uh, personally: What are you working towards in moving towards the the middle thing that we, you know, you mentioned about you know not religion, but also <laughs> not not the secular ideology? What uh, what are you doing currently to support? So, that? I
0: mean, I I, I do things. Um, so, in addition to the academic study and teaching of this material, I also try to teach people extracurricular some of these psychotechnologies, mindfulness practices. I teach. Classes on meditation, tai chi, right, um, and, and uh, contemplative practices, um, and, and I used to run a wisdom sangha too. I'd like to start that up again. Um, then, uh, when you're an academic, your schedule changes all the time, and it, it's, it's difficult. What I'm doing also is I'm trying to. So I, i just, I'm just coming off sabbatical. And I have another one in a happy a year. It's a weird situation. Um, I, I, I am, and, and, and with other people, not on my own, but with other people, a lot of these people I have mentioned, colleagues, um, RAs, um, and fellow professors, trying to a, like, examine a lot of these psychotechnologies and trying to salvage what was going on when people are practicing this, practice or that, practice or that, practice or that. And trying to, what, I, what, I, what we do in cognitive science, we reverse engineer, we try to reverse engineer the mind right? That's what we're trying to do in AI. I'm trying to reverse engineer what, like, there's all these, often these creepy, wonky metaphysics and weird beliefs and crazy superstitions, right? But thinking about what Nietzsche said is, can we reverse engineer what were the psychotechnologies? What was going on in neoplatonism when people were doing theurgia? What was going on in, you know, and the Gnostics were doing all their weird, strange stuff. What's going on when the Tibetan, like, and you, you, you can't be you can't just dabble, right? You have to like you have to like seriously read and study and practice and go through that transformative challenge, right? You, so like ah, you have to guinea pig yourself to a degree, but you can't autodidact. So doing a lot of that, I'm trying to integrate that that, that practical in a deep sense. It's an insufficient word that practical knowledge into a lot of this theoretical knowledge, as I mentioned. I'm I'm, I'm about to release a a video series on my YouTube channel, um, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. It's uh, it's a series of hour-long videos, um, basically trying to lay out all this argument and then also talk about, right, how do we respond to the meaning crisis culturally? How is it enmeshed and interacting with other crises we're facing? facing socio political, socio-economic environment, socio-econom- socio-ecological crises, how how does it intermesh, right? Uh, and and trying and uh, but also individually, giving people, okay, what are what are psychotechnologies you can practice? How can they be systematically related? <clears throat> trying to give people, again, not on my own, but with many other people, like what does wisdom mean? What what does how can, what's a theoretical structure that you can use, right? Uh, and, and trying to, to 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 set that up for people. Uh, sorry, that sounds pretentious, and I don't mean it to be. But I'm trying to answer your question. No, and I
2: and I appreciate it because there's a sense of urgency. Yes, like we we can't we can't wait for the perfect product. We just have to start doing it. We have to, and everybody has to try their best and and collaborate, and not you know not one person is ever going to solve this whole thing.
0: Exactly, exactly, totally. And we are facing individually, collectively, and. Culturally we're facing like we have to go through the greatest transformative experience Like at all those levels in some coordinated fashion that we've ever gone through because you know As I said these crises are all mutually interacting with each other like the meaning crisis and the ecological crisis like, they talk to each other they resonate with each other in, in, in you know in, in this sort of nasty fashion um, i talked about this with with Christopher Master Pietro and Philip Misovic in the book we wrote on, on zombies as a as a current mythology that the cultures produce for trying to give expression to the meaning crisis but also right the 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 idea of a you know of a devastated ecology because the interesting thing about zombies they're not supernatural monsters they're just us diseased and decadent right (laughs) and what's weird is like they're mindless they lack the capacity to make meaning and they're like they are the only communal monster. They move in hordes, but there's no culture. Yeah. There's no real. No, community. no real connection. Right. Yeah. And they consume. They consume, but to no purpose, to no end. Right. And and and, and, and so they re- and, and they represent like the meaning crisis and, and and the way it has a both metaphorically like the, the the destruction of our spiritual ecology and how that is intermeshed with our destruction of our biological ecology.
1: Absolutely, and just in closing like the things that you're mentioning is in line with why we even started this podcast yeah uh, totally. adrian and i were having coffee together and we were talking about the crisis of meaning and how that's affecting us on a daily basis and our generation and and today you just gave us a lot of food for thought a lot yeah.
0: <laughs> thank well, you well great well thank you for the opportunity i mean i really uh, there, there, we, there's so much here i mean we
1: so much richness yeah we i
0: mean Sorry, every academic says this, and <laughs> but we've really just scratched the surface in yeah. so many ways. Absolutely. There's just so much going too. on. Yeah, there's so much going on. Uh, um, like I said, you know, there's going to be the video series. Uh, and right,
1: a lot off. of your language is very, to me, it's very mystical. Like it's just amazing and scientific. <laughs> well, that's
0: that's the thing. I would hope it's both. It I,
1: is. Right? It is. I.
0: I, I mean. I. I, I what I, I. What I find. One of the things I find gratifying is when I teach courses like this. I'll have people from both sides of the aisle who are usually yelling at each other come up and say that was really good
1: absolutely yes and,
0: and sorry th- I mean that's obviously appeals to my egotism and uh, acknowledging <laughs> that but I think I can if I can put myself aside to some degree
1: but you also mentioned that you work with a lot of people that's that right. there are a lot of people that are talking this language now that's right and yeah. that's what I
0: think that's what I'm trying to say that's what I and I, and I try to tell my students that and again and this the, people say this and this can also be a twisty narcissistic thing. But try really focus on the work and focus on what was happening in the ideas. Yeah. Don't focus on me, right? But really there's 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 it's 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 simultaneously a terrifying and exciting time.
1: It is, absolutely. Yes.
2: Yeah. John, to be continued. It was okay. a pleasure. Great, thank you very much guys. I really enjoyed this whole thank lot. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshipper, lover of leaving. But you can't heed a summon with limbs paralyzed, deafened by comfort. Layers of dullness emulsify the soul. Oily clunks disperse in an abyss, and you sullen mistake the dispersal with contentment. Even if you have broken your vow a hundred times, come, come again, come. But you just listen by day, haunted by night, dead words, weaved words, resurrected words. Those you love transfigure one by one, oblivious to a melody that breaks inside and lets in a certain slant of light. Our tongues, my friend, can relearn sacred letters that invoke love that which no longer crosses boundaries and lines. Love only traverses heights and renders a primordial being, alif, la, mem, beyond distractions, beyond embellishments, sheathed in an ancient embrace. Mute the admiring bog and taste the whirl of dervishes. Upwards it goes, upwards infinitely. Untangle the soul's labyrinth and unmask tricksters with empty words, just like the day you heard the trees sway when your father's body was lowered down because cancerous cells ravaged his brain the litany of trees reverberated inside your veins, you too shall be lowered. You too shall be lowered. We choose our gods. We create some in the morning and kill some in the evening. Free worshipers, freedom worshipers. So tell me your fears, my friend, and let us listen not to the songs of flat men ravaged by history and bones that summon blood and spit flailing heads in the name of something that is akin to a primitive darkness severed from the invoked frighten men who want the world to end but this this is the way the world ends this is the way the world ends this is the way the world ends not with a bang but a whimper.
2: We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find links and show notes at soulspacepodcast.com. Next episode, we chat with Erin Shepard about her experience doing silent meditation retreats, which she has been doing annually for over 20 years. Follow us on social media at soulspacepod at soulspacepod. We are most active on Instagram and Facebook at the moment. You can help us grow by leaving us a review on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time.